Well, when I was uh, younger in primary school, I've got a very clear memory of needing to be rescued. Um, My brother and I found ourselves in that situation. Um, As kids who grew up in the country, we'd often go for a week's holiday down to the south coast, and um, uh, we loved doing that in summer. And uh, one year, um, my brother Steve and I, we were given new boogie boards for Christmas, and so when we went down to the coast, well, we would spend all day, every day at the beach. Um, but one day at the beach, we got caught in a rip. And um, we were pretty ignorant of uh, being able to spot those dangers. And so we found ourselves very quickly taken a long, long way out to sea. And um, well, for me and Steve, we weren't really that worried about it. We were on our boards, we were having a good time. But Um, For mum and dad, back on the beach, seeing us disappear, well, they uh, very quickly uh, went and found the lifeguards uh, to come and rescue us. I wonder if you've ever been in that kind of a situation where you needed to be rescued uh, when you were in danger and uh, you needed someone else to come and to help. Well, that is the situation uh, for God's people Israel uh, that we see here as we start uh, our way into the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. The situation for them is that they need God's help. They need God to come and to rescue them. Um, The situation, as we've just heard, is that they are oppressed and in slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so what we'll see as we work our way through this book is that they look to God for help. They call out to God to come and to rescue them, uh, to save them, to liberate them, to set them free from their slavery. And uh, we'll really just uh, make a start on that today and start to see the freedom that uh, God brings for us. Uh, But what we'll see is that this story of redemption in the Old Testament in Exodus is really the key moment in the Old Testament that points us forward to what we have now received through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so as we uh, jump in today, uh, just a couple of things that I want us to see. Firstly, uh, we'll see how this connects with the uh, first book, uh, Genesis, and we'll see how this is a continuing story of God's faithfulness to his people. Uh, We'll also see the continuing impact of sin, which is so obvious in this opening chapter. Uh, But amid that, we'll also consider how God's great mercy sets us free to live as his people in the world today. So we jump into it, and it might be an obvious thing as we begin to say that Exodus continues on from uh, the book of Genesis before, but it's actually even more obvious in the original Hebrew um, because Exodus 1 verse 1 doesn't come through in the English, but it begins with the word and. Um, It says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. Now, you probably know it's not good grammar to begin a sentence with the word and, um, but it is a good way to highlight that what is uh, being said in this book is continuing on from what has come before. And just um, turn back one page in your Bibles and you'll see um, at the the end of um, Genesis, uh, the way that it finishes, well, Genesis really cries out for a sequel. It could almost finish with the words to be continued. So it finishes with the story here of Joseph, who's taken down to Egypt. Um, He's sold there by his brothers uh, into slavery. But, of course, God uses Joseph to uh, save the world from famine at the time. 
And that's the means of Joseph's family, the descendants of Abraham. That's how they came to live in Egypt. And uh, even though it finishes there by telling us of Joseph's death, well, you see he, he, he dies with this hope. Uh, in verse 24 of Genesis 50, it says, uh, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. And so then we start into the book of Exodus with this expectation that God is not going to leave his people in slavery. He's going to come to their aid. And certainly that's what we see um, then in the opening verses of Exodus, God uh, fulfilling the promises that he had made to his people. Uh, Firstly, the promises that he made to Abraham. Um, And just to recap what those promises are, because those promises that God made to Abraham are really um, so critical for the whole story of the Bible. Um, In Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17, those promises are repeated. Um, The way that I was taught um, to remember those promises to Abraham was the acronym LOB. I don't know if you've heard that one, Um, but land, offspring and blessing. God would bring them into a good land, the promised land. Uh, He would give Abraham and Sarah much offspring, many descendants, greater than the sand on the seashore, and blessing. Not only would they be blessed, but they would be the means of God blessing all of the nations. And in Genesis 15, um, after Abraham was for the second time told those promises, uh, well, God spoke this to him really key verse as we come into Exodus, says, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So that's what God said to Abraham. Uh, many years earlier, and really that becomes the plot line um, for the book of Exodus. That's exactly what we're going to see unfold. And so the first um, chapter of Exodus um, tells us then about the sons of Israel, uh, those who went down to live in Egypt at the time of the famine. Uh, There was uh, verse 5 there in chapter 1 tells us there were 70 of them in all. But then, of course, that generation uh, dies Joseph and his brothers uh, die in Egypt um, and other generations pass as well. But that's what God said, that for 400 years they would uh, be strangers in a country not their own. But in that country, even in slavery, well, we see how God is keeping his promises. So verse 7 says, But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, And multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So that's the O, isn't it? Offspring. And uh, I think the big thing that we should see here as we come into Exodus, even though God's people are there in slavery, is that God is still keeping his promises. He is uh, faithful 
to this promise here to multiply his people. And of course that was actually the first command that God gave to humanity um, in the garden to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And it's what God is still doing today. Um, God's purpose was that those uh, created in his image um, would fill the earth and so fill the earth with, with, with his image and likeness. Now, of course, because we are affected by sin, it means we don't always image God the way that we should. Um, often we're more like a, a broken mirror in the way that we reflect his likeness. But I think God's purpose still remains. And for us now through the gospel, what he is doing is he's recreating us in his likeness. And so this promise now is being fulfilled not just by those who are descendants of Abraham through their ancestry, but as we become the children of Abraham through faith. Well, um, we uh, begin to be recreated in God's image. And so now um, God's people all over the world are transformed through the news of the gospel. And this is how God is continuing to multiply his people throughout the world. And so this is what the gospel does. And we heard about that last week as we thought about the mission that Jesus sends his people on. And uh, the purpose of God as we would represent him as his image bearers in the world. Now we do this, I think, as we see next, within the context of a world that is still suffering under the consequences of sin. And so this is the second thing that we notice as we begin this journey into Exodus, that not only does the faithfulness of God continue, but also the oppressiveness of sin in the world continues. Um, It is in a world of sin, this is the backdrop of the world in which we live, the world in which God's promises are now being brought to fulfilment. And what we see here in Exodus is that the form that takes is that God's people are threatened as his people are opposed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And uh, we see this really in these three attacks on the Israelites. So um, Pharaoh is uh, clearly concerned about the Israelites growing and becoming numerous And he throws everything he has at them to stop them from multiplying. But really, no matter what Pharaoh does, well, God's purposes continue to prevail. So um, take a look here. We'll see these three attacks. The first is in verse 8. We're told this, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So clearly a a significant time um, has passed between the end of Genesis and the start of Exodus. Um, There is some debate about the exact date of the Exodus, but it's at least the 400 years uh, since the time of Joseph. So these many generations have passed. Um, The people of Israel have increased greatly in number. uh, and, And this is seen as a threat by the new pharaoh, the new king in Egypt. And uh, clearly this new pharaoh has forgotten his history. 
Or maybe he just doesn't care about what Joseph uh, did for Egypt so long ago. Um, Because the problem for him is that this great number of foreigners are seen as a security threat. Uh, The concern, as it says there, is that should a war come, well, then Israel might join with the opposition and fight against Egypt. So what's Pharaoh's plan to keep the Israelites under control? Well, his plan is to oppress them. Obviously, a believer in the stick being more effective than the carrot His plan is to inflict on them hard labour so that not only are they treated as slaves, but they're subjected to brutal treatment as well. In particular, we're told this labour program was to build these store cities of Pithom and Ramses. And so that's Pharaoh's plan, but it completely backfires. As verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so much so that the Egyptians were in dread of them. There were so many children being born. It's not exactly the same, but it feels a bit like um, last week we went to our um, college year group retreat, uh, which is a catch-up for the year group at Bible College that uh, Nicole and I studied with. And I don't know why this is the case, but for some reason, you know, most ministry families seem to have four or more children. And um, we all stayed in a caravan park together and when our college year group arrives, it's a bit like a minivan convention in the car park and, you know, the conference centre at mealtimes, well, because there's so many kids, you know, the ratio of children to adults is pretty lopsided and it kind of feels like if the kids wanted to, they could probably start a rebellion. (laughs) And, you know, maybe that's sort of how it was feeling for the Egyptians, the Israelites becoming so numerous, they just keep on increasing. And so Pharaoh's uh, solution to that is that he continues to oppress them. And it certainly goes up a notch here in verse 15, doesn't it? Because if, if working them hard won't stop them having babies, well, Pharaoh's next shot is to have all of the male babies killed. And it's a horrible plan. And uh, he plans to do that through the hands of the Hebrew midwives. Um, So you see what he instructs them there in verse 16. He says, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, whoever feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, they let the boys live. And so thankfully, and, you know, admirably, uh, the midwives refused to comply. And I want to return to their example a a bit later, but for now, just notice the effect here is that Pharaoh's plan is foiled again. But then there's a third attempt, which is really just a, a general order of genocide. So verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. So first it was just the... The uh, midwives were told to do this, but now all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And so we see this pattern in this chapter. You know, as Pharaoh oppresses God's people with these increasingly drastic measures as he seeks to restrain their growth. And it's this oppression that we'll see will cause God's people to cry out to him for rescue. 
Um, because I think this is the picture we're shown here at the start of Exodus. It's a people in slavery and in great need of rescue because they are unable to save themselves. And what they need and what the later chapters of Exodus will show us is an intervention from God to save them from their slavery once and for all. Now you might have noticed that in this first chapter there's not really a whole lot of mention of God. Um, But I think we do detect his sovereign work behind the scenes, uh, caring for his people, continuing to bring about his promises even in the midst of their slavery. They continue to multiply. And ironically, as we'll see next week, the boy Moses, who is one of those sons thrown into the river, well, he will become the means through which God uses to save the Israelites from their slavery. And of course, we should see in that a glimpse of the salvation that ultimately will come through the Lord Jesus, another baby boy, now this time in Bethlehem, ordered to be killed but protected by God and who in time becomes the means of redemption for God's people, freeing them not just from slavery to an oppressive Pharaoh but freeing his people from slavery to sin and to the oppression and lies of the devil. And so as we think today about you know this picture of oppression and slavery, well, I do want us to think about how this applies to us today. And I think Jesus' words, which we read also in John chapter 8, are very helpful for us. Because what he describes there is a slavery that is common to all of us. Uh, Jesus says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And what he talks about in that chapter is that we are kept as slaves to sin because we believe the lies of the devil. He says that the devil is a liar and that he has been lying from the beginning. But the good news is that Jesus says that we can be set free from that slavery by believing the truth. And what Jesus so clearly um, says, and I think what we can see in Exodus as well, is that there is an enemy behind the enemy. Now, there is one who is working to undo God's plans and purposes. And the main way that he does it is by telling lies. And it's been that way from the beginning. Now, the very first lie of the devil was to get us to doubt that God is good and that he cares for us. And you can imagine that it would have been very easy for the Israelites here in slavery to believe those kind of lies. See, how could they believe that God really cares for them when for 400 years they'd been in slavery? How could they believe that God will bring about good for them when all they can see is this oppression increasing? Now, how can they believe that God loves them when this horrible order comes that their sons are to be killed. When you can see the strategy of the devil, can't you? He wants us to believe that God doesn't care, that God doesn't want what is good for you, that he doesn't love you. And I'm sure that we're all tempted to believe those same lies at times. And when we do believe them, will they lead us away from God and into sin. 
And so Jesus says a couple of things to us about that in John chapter 8. First, I mean, he warns us. He says that we need to be aware of the devil's lies, that we need to know that this is his strategy to oppress and to keep people in slavery. But second, Jesus also wants us to know that the, the truth will set you free. As we believe the truths of the gospel, if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And I want us just to finish today by thinking briefly about this example, I think, of two people here in Exodus 1 who are, I think, really a standout example of living in freedom as God's people. And uh, that example, of course, is these two Hebrew midwives, uh, Shifra and Pua. And see, see how it's described there again in verse 15. It says, The king of Egypt said to these Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Now, I think it's likely there was many more midwives than just those two, but probably these two might have acted in some supervisory role. And they're given this terrible order to kill all of the sons who are born. But what Pharaoh didn't take into account was that there might be some in Israel who have a higher loyalty. And so we read here in verse 17 that the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, well, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So you notice what's going on here? They, they fear God more than they fear the Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh interrogates them, well, they don't exactly tell the truth. We've heard a couple of laugh, little bit of laughter there, um, maybe from some nurses in the audience. But God rewards them, doesn't he? And he blesses them because they've chosen to do what is right. They've chosen to live as his people and bearing his likeness in a hostile world. And I want to say that these midwives are really a great example to us because of the way that they live for God and the way that they represent his character in the way that they act. See, so having received mercy from God, will they act in mercy? Having been set free, will they live and act in ways that now will benefit others, even at great risk to their own lives? And so this is the change that comes about in God's people when we begin to know his goodness toward us, when we start to believe that we are loved and safe and secure in him, that we are cared for, that God is working out his good purposes in our lives, as we start to believe those truths, well, it sets us free to begin to live for God in the world.
Now, there's a great example of this that I read, and maybe you saw it in um, the Anzac Day booklet. Did everyone get that Anzac Day booklet delivered in the mailbox? There's a great story about a chaplain in there, um, Andrew Gillison, who gave his life serving at Gallipoli. Um, the story was that he heard, you know, he was in the trenches at, at Gallipoli and he heard the voice of someone groaning in the no man's land, you know, the area between the Anzac trenches and the Turkish trenches. And this chaplain, he got up out of the trench uh, to go and to retrieve this injured man. And as he did, the commander, he screamed at him saying, no, get back in the trench um, but another soldier said to the commander, he said, it's no use. He's a man who fears no bullet. And uh, while he was dragging this injured man back to safety, well, tragically, the chaplain was shot. And his last words were this. He said, I'm just a servant going home to my master. I thought it was great that that was printed. <laughs> and put in all of our mailboxes, but it's a tragic scene, isn't it? But I think also what a beautiful example of someone living out of the freedom of knowing their safety and security in God. And so able to give his life in service of others. Now, I think I've shared about this before, but Martin Luther wrote a treatise on Christian freedom called was called The Freedom of a Christian, and he, he, he put it like this. He said, A Christian is a perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. But at the same time, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And there he, he captures this pattern of what we see as we come to know God and the freedom of living our lives for him that we are set free so that we might then serve others. Like we see here today, we're set free from the fear of pharaohs, set free from Satan's lies, set free from the fear of death, which means set free to live as God's people, loving others in service of others. We see it beautifully in this example of the midwives fearing God above all else, so that they can act in mercy toward others, even at the risk of their own lives. We see it ultimately in the Lord Jesus, who freely not just risked his life, but gave his life so that we could be rescued and so that we could experience the freedom of living as sons and daughters of the God who loves us and who is working out his good purposes for us each day. So friends, knowing that rescue and that we have been set free, well, may we this week live in that freedom of knowing and serving the God who has poured out his mercy on us. Let me pray that God would help us to do that. Father God, this morning we... We are just so thankful for the rescue that we have received through the Lord Jesus. We, are, we know that we were trapped in sin and darkness. But Jesus came so that we might be forgiven, that we might be set free. 
And Father, as we continue to reflect on these things, as we reflect on these truths of the gospel, will help us to know more and more that if the Son has set us free, then we are free indeed. And may we, in response, live our lives following him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.